Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. I'm Noah Randolph, your average Bible nerd looking into the chapters of both Romans and Deuteronomy uh, with all the fervor I can muster each week, bringing you insights that hopefully can bring you some peace in your own life and help you work your way through scripture on your own time. Come along for the ride. Today's going to be fun. This is the infamous Romans 9 passage. Many pastors often uh, skip when they're preaching through the book of Romans, um, either downplaying it as a story just for Jews and not mattering to our context today, or avoiding it for more doctrinal reasons, or preaching from it solely and it becoming the entire um, point of the entire book of Romans. Um, We'll talk about all that and more today on this episode of the Boring Bible Podcast. So, we are at the infamous Romans 9. I figured I'd give you guys a little bit of a history with Romans 9 from my own perspective because um, I grew up in a fairly doctrinal mindset family. Um, My father um, was a staunch Calvinist, um, still is, and uh, I think I heard about Romans 9 before I heard about any other chapter in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans 9 was a chapter that, um, it's interesting growing up in Memphis, probably one of the most dominant um, denominations in um, Tennessee, I would say, and especially in Memphis, is um, the Baptist Church. And in particular, there's a very massive church in Memphis uh, called Bellevue Baptist Church. And um, they, uh, I, I need to do a little bit more research into their history and like who really made them the big name that they are in Memphis. Um, There's actually like a literal street named after that church. Um, But one of their primary pastors was a man named Adrian Rogers. And he's someone that came come uh like came up a lot in my earlier upbringing as a christian underneath my father um because my father uh strongly disagreed with adrian rogers on his reading of romans 9 and uh, uh adrian rogers kind of existed in my mind as a young kid as sort of like um the more arminian kind of perspective of Uh, reading Romans, and then uh, my father was more of the Calvinistic perspective. And so, uh, in many ways, like, uh, it was interesting. Uh, I tended to gravitate as a young kid towards my father's opinions on things. And so, uh, I was very much uh, primed from a very early age to kind of see Christianity from this lens of um, reading it through the lens of Romans 9, really. And uh, there were people... Uh, like Adrian Rogers, that at least according to my father, um, would uh, not preach from it at all and ignore it as text and say it's just a, a Jewish story and it has nothing to say 
to Christians today. Um, and then there were the Calvinists who believed that it did have something to say to Christians today. And that was kind of the two choices, is you either accepted that Romans 9 was uh, something that uh, mattered only to um, the people of Paul's day and age, or it's something that mattered to us as well. Um, what's going to be interesting is you'll find that I uh, slide into neither or of those categories, um, but kind of take a both and when it comes to that. I think um, Adrian Rogers had something valuable to say there, and I think my father had something valuable to say. And so um, there's going to be an interesting, my hope is to kind of be the bridge between that um, uh, war that uh, I grew up um, sensing and uh, yearning to understand growing up. And uh, my hope is to do justice, whether or not you're a Calvinist or an Arminian, um, Baptist or um, Reformed Baptist, um, my hope is that you come away from this episode feeling at least that even if you disagree with me, that I did a fair job of the text, um, that I approached the text admirably and um, humbly, um, and that uh, this isn't an episode where I get on my high horse and um, say it how it is or whatever, but um, is instead a way to um, demonstrate that there are different ways to read this and um, a lot of engagement of this passage, I feel a need to explain, because um, what I will talk about a lot today is a motivation for why Paul wrote this chapter, and um, a good a good rule of thumb for um, interpreting tough to understand passages of the Bible is to really ask why is this here. Um, like, what is the purpose? And you will actually find that uh, a lot of times um, your answer to that question really helps to, um, uh, I would say, helps to uh, guide you through understanding passages that are difficult to understand. And uh, a lot of times what I have found is um, Paul's flow of thought from chapters one through eight can become super vital to understanding the next chapter, which is why you'll have noticed that pretty much every episode of this podcast, I have recapped everything up to that point, because I really think it's helpful to understand sort of the guide rails of his flow of thought. You know, I don't, there, there are some people um, in the academic world, at least, that study Paul and believe Paul is very erratic as far as his mental thoughts go. Um, there's another camp that actually believes that Paul wrote different sections of his book at different times, and so there's no linear through line from one start to chapter one all the way to the end. Instead, he wrote it in separate chunks and then spliced it all together. Um, I take neither of those views, neither that um, Paul spliced together a different pieces uh, of different thoughts and that they're all separately organized and they have no connection to one another. Uh, I don't hold to that view and I don't hold to the view um, that uh, Paul is mentally erratic either. Um, I I really believe that he has a concise way of describing things, but I also think that he is difficult to understand because Peter says that. Um, and so there is a sense in which I think uh, it can become too easy of a cop-out to say, well, you know, um, this appears just to be 
insert it in here. And unfortunately, when we get to Romans 9 through 11, this whole section here, um, we're in a new section, by the way. Um, the chapters 1 through 4 are considered a section. Chapters um, 5 through 8 are considered a a, new, a section, and chapters 9 through 11 are considered a section. Um, and 9 through 11, unfortunately, get seen a lot, uh, especially from people in kind of the more um, Arminian side of the fence, as a, uh, a splicing section that Paul inserts into his book just to talk about the Jewish people for a little bit before... Re- returning to his main point. Um, And people that have that view have a sense in which uh, Paul's main point has been, how do you get saved? Um, And uh, he goes through how to get saved basically from chapter one all the way to chapter eight. And then after you get to chapter eight, Paul then spends three chapters to say, but what about Jews and people that uh, don't? Uh, believe in Jesus. And there is an element to that. We'll talk about that. I'm not saying that that's not entirely um, wrong, but um, one, as you guys have known throughout every one of these episodes so far, I take issue with um, the statement that Paul wrote the book of Romans to tell you how to be saved. I think he actually assumes that most of the people he's writing to are already saved. Um, And so he's not explaining how they should get saved, he is actually explaining what their salvation should mean to them, considering the fact that they are having this war or tension going on between Jewish and Gentile relations. That's the first big thing I set up in chapter one, was to reorient ourselves to the meaning of this book. And uh, I pointed out several examples in chapter one of how it's quite obvious, at least to me, that uh, Paul is not writing to people that are not saved and trying to convert them. He is writing to a community that has already believed in salvation and needs to understand that their salvation matters to their relationship to people of different cultures and races. Um, And in this case, their salvation matters to um, the Jews and how the Jews understand the Old Testament. And so he's really trying to clarify how Jewish opinion of the Old Testament um, is very nuanced and how uh, for Paul, at least, he's not throwing out the Old Testament with this new thing called Christianity, but he is actually seeing Christianity as the uh, inevitable and fulfilling aspect of the Old Testament, Um, and that Judaism's answer um, currently, in his time period at least, to um, the problem of the Old Testament that the Old Testament ends with, namely that humans are still flawed and broken and can't follow the law, um, Judaism's answer to that is um, to boil down on the law and to rely on it for salvation, um, rely on it for um, that moment when the Messiah comes and cleans house, um, that answer is just not going to cut it. Um, And so that's, that's really where we have Romans situated in. And under that lens, Romans 9 through 11 makes a lot more sense than when you say that Romans 1 through 11, uh, 1 through 8 is all about how do you get saved. Um, in that new way of understanding Romans, um, which isn't new, it's actually been quite um, predominantly the major way that uh, Christians have understood the book of Romans and understanding it in a 
Romans is about how you get saved is actually um, something that didn't come about until really about the 16th century with um, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Um, But even so, uh, that understanding of Romans uh, melds pretty well with chapters 9 through 11 in a huge way. Uh, Sorry, uh, melds pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Romans 1 through 8 melds pretty well with 9 through 11. Sorry. Um, It's kind of hard to keep all the numbers straight. Um, And one of the ways that uh, this works out well is um, in the sense that uh, a lot of the chapters have been kind of toying with one central concept about Judaism, which I've uh, made sure to bring out in almost every chapter that we've gone through so far, which is that Paul is not um, distancing himself from the Old Testament story of Israel. Um, He's not trying to say that all of the story of Abraham being called, um, predestined, um, adopted. Um, he's not trying to say that all of that language of Abraham um, having a purpose that God calls him to and then having children that are then called to that same purpose, he's not trying to say that um, Christianity is trying to replace that. Um, what he is saying is that Christianity is um living that out now um, as the Jews have always desired it to be and that the people that are living that out now can be Gentiles. Um, That's the big distinction he's trying to make is um, he's not doing away with any of the promises made to Abraham. Why would he have Romans chapter 4 if that were the case? Um, He's actually reworking all of Christianity under the umbrella of that promise made to Abraham and that call made to Abraham. And we've talked about that before, um, but just to reiterate it again, the call to Abraham was that he would be a light to the rest of the nations. His purpose was to be the shining light. Um, This eventually gets reworked into um, Samuel and Kings as a city on a hill that shines. Um, And the city is called Mount Zion. And that city then becomes um, the place that everybody goes. You can go and read Isaiah 2 to really get this sense that um, the ultimate goal is for this city of Zion that is um, uh, made up of a people um, that, at least from the Old Testament's perspective, they thought uh, that city would be filled with people that are just Jews. Um, That city is filled with uh, people that are called to shine out their light to the rest of the nations, and that the Gentiles then would come to believe in God through the people that are in um, Mount Zion, finally becoming what they were called to be, right? And so we talked about this in Romans 8, how uh, Paul um, really, uh, I guess I would say provocatively, um, insinuates now at the very end of Romans 8 that all Christians are included in that vocation, that they're um, predestined and not predestined to be a light shining on a hill, although that will be a component. But what he says is they're predestined to be um, conformed to the pattern of Jesus, um, and that the life of Jesus is now what we're called to be. And in that sense, um, Jesus 
calls people in um, chapter five of the book of Matthew to be a city um, that's a light shining on a hill. And so we can see that Jesus's life and ministry are in many ways uh, pulling from that Old Testament story. Um, but in that sense, uh, it is an adaption of sorts. It is a, uh, it's not a uh, replacement, but it is an adaption of the expectation that the Old Testament um, people had. Now, the prophets, uh, Hebrews will say the prophets knew that this was going to happen all along. Um, the prophets could actually see that it was happening, and the prophetic books um, point to it. Um, and uh, But for the majority of first century um Judaism, um, they did not have that expectation. They didn't have the expectation of their Messiah living like someone that was um, oppressed. Um, They did not read Isaiah 53 as um, the Messiah figure. They instead saw him as Israel. Um, And a lot of the way that uh, Jesus lives his life out, constantly challenging the people that um, are thought to be the most morally righteous and the most law-abiding citizens um, conflicted with their expectation of the Messiah also being like the Pharisees and being someone that was rigidly adhering to the law code. All of that plays into a big, big question mark about Judaism and Paul's thought process behind it, because, uh, you know, really, when I, when I simplify Romans 1 through 8 um, with what Paul's saying, he's really, you know, saying that now Gentiles are coming to the faith in droves and Jews are having problems with it. And that seems to go against one of the core tenets of something like Isaiah 2 that seems to indicate that it's Jews that are uh, on a mountain in a city, giving the light to the Gentiles. Um, in this case, it feels as if the, the tables are reversed and now it's Gentiles giving light to Jews, um, or at least trying to, and Jews are actually having a hardening of their own hearts. And so there's this big question mark. I think that even a Jew might ask Paul, um, of this time period, at least of like, you recognize that like, what you're preaching is offending Jews all over the place. And if you're saying that this, this belief, Christianity, is just as much of a Jewish faith as it is a Gentile faith, if that's what you really believe, uh, then why is it that you don't have a good track record with Jews coming to the faith? Why is it that Jews are um, actually pretty angry with you and want to kill you um, when you begin to talk to them about this faith from their own scriptures, you know? Um, And this is actually something that um, would be something that the Romans and like the Gentiles in higher positions in Rome would question Paul about most definitely because there was an open-ended question of whether or not Christianity was a cult. And Judaism was considered an established religion. It was considered an odd religion. Um, It only believed in one God. And so in that sense, it had a very um, odd place in um, kind of the Greek and Roman culture and society, but it was still considered a religion and it was given its due, so to speak. Um, It was given some of the rights that any religion of that time period, the Rome and Greek uh, and 
Greek philosophy of the time was that a religion that differed from Rome um, wasn't to be stamped out or wiped out. Instead, it was to be subsumed within their own culture. And all right, sure, like you believe in one God. Um, sure, we'll, we'll build an altar to that God, too. Are you happy now? And most of the time, most of the civilizations would be completely fine with just Rome building another altar and another temple to whatever that new god was um, and being completely okay with that. Um, uh, Jews historically were not okay with that because they were um, one god only, and so it wasn't just oh, yeah, sure, we'll let you build a temple to our God and then everything's hunky-dory. Like They were like, no, you need to get rid of Zeus and every um, other God that you have subsumed other under your um, pantheon um, and only worship God. And that was something Rome would never do because it went against their entire philosophy of how they um, conquered nations, which was to adopt whatever religion was the one they conquered into their own. Um all that being said, uh, higher Roman elites then would look very, uh, I guess I would say critically. We actually have evidence of this from um, letters by Pliny the Younger, um, or Pliny the Elder, sorry, um, and a few others that show that um, Romans in high society at the time looked down on Christians quite a lot because they were a uh, sect of Judaism. And so Judaism already doesn't have a great record with um, uh, Rome. And then on top of that, uh, a branch off from Judaism that's even weirder than Judaism. You can see why the Romans would not necessarily be excited about that as a concept. And so um, on top of that, Christianity was very uh, radical in its teachings about leaders and in particular about um, a person that was crucified being Messiah or King um, is the term that uh, the Romans had a huge issue with because to them crucifixion was the most humiliating thing a man could undergo and was the thing that uh, degraded you the most. And so for an entire religion to claim that their King over the entire universe um who had resurrected was crucified was a very um, uh, scandalous thing to claim. And as a result, uh, it's kind of, I think in some ways, Romans nine through 11 is Paul's attempt to show that uh, Christianity isn't just some wild cult that popped up that's separate from Judaism and is something that, the Romans could just see as something that they need to stamp out, but is instead integrally related to Judaism in a huge way so that any of those Roman centurions and higher ups could see at least um, that there is an integral part to Christianity that um, Paul uh, sees within Judaism. And that Judaism, you can't have Christianity without this integral part of Judaism. Um, but even on the flip side, I think there's a third reason Paul does this. Um, so we've already said two, right? We've said one, I think Paul is trying to address um, the question of why uh, why it is Jews are getting so offended by what he's saying. Um, and two, he's also trying to convince these higher up Roman officials that um, Christianity and Judaism are not as far apart as you may think. Um, and then three, 
um, and I think this is the most personal we ever see Paul get, is Paul just really cares about Jews. Like th- That's what we're going to get in in the first couple lines is just how much he cares about Jews and how much he loves Jews. Um, and so there is a element here in these chapters of just really a personal component of he needs to talk about this because this is something that's really weighing on his heart. Um, and it's something that really, um, in some ways, Romans 9 is the dark side of the coin to the happy side of the coin that was Romans 8. Um, the happy side of the coin, Romans 8, is that uh, Christians now are chosen and get all of the advantages that it was said in the Old Testament only Jews got, right? Um that's incredible news, right? Like we're now predestined, we're now called, like all of these things that just were for the Jewish people, like are now for anybody that believes in Jesus. Incredible news, right? Like the Holy Spirit's working within us. This is why Romans 8, we took two episodes to walk through is because it is the happiest chapter in the book of Romans, in my opinion. Um, there's so much promise in those chapters. Uh, or in that chapter. But <laughs> anytime Paul says something like that in Romans 8, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, but the Jews now are no longer believing in Jesus. Jesus is becoming a stumbling block to them. Um, it's just, you know, all of this joy that he's getting from all of these Gentile churches popping up, like Ephesus and um, Galatia and um Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth, right? Like all these churches that he's helped found, that he's just having way better reception with Gentiles than he is Jews. And something that started with the promises of the Old Testament made specifically to Jewish people is now affecting only, not only, but large majority is uh, predominantly getting affected are Gentiles. And so there is a deep sadness in Paul's language in these chapters of if Christianity is um, supposed to be a unifier between Jews and Gentiles, it's, if it's supposed to unite both Jews and Gentiles under Christ, right? If that's what it's supposed to be, then why is that not working? Why is that not working out right now? Um, and we're going to see Paul really explore that question. We're going to see him explore um, what's going on there. And I, I think it's very helpful to think about it that way because this is probably the closest we get to Paul processing Christianity not accomplishing something that it's purporting to do um, in a huge way. Um or Christianity not accomplishing something just yet is the way Paul will talk about it. And so I, I don't, I think one of the flat readings of Romans is to read Romans as something in which um, Paul has a very clear understanding of every part of God's working in and through humans and that he understands everything completely fully. Um, and that we just need to really read him carefully and we'll get all the truth that Paul has to tell us. I think you can find numerous examples of times when Paul says, he'll, he'll say in Corinthians, for instance, um, 
this is not from God. This is just from me because I don't have a word of God from this. Um, he'll say in um, another place uh, how like his own uh, concept of what happened when he was caught up to the third heaven. He doesn't know if that was an out of the body experience or an in the body experience. Um, many times Paul is processing things even as he's writing the letters. And it's important to recognize with this chapter in particular um, that there are a few moments here where I do see Paul just wrestling with a concept as much as we are wrestling with a concept. And he has, he has a thought and a, and I, and I think that thought is something that we should consider and really um, talk about. Uh, but it is a, uh, he literally says, what if at the front of that thought, like if I were to say, what if it were this, um, is that saying, uh, I hold this as dogma or truth and I believe it wholeheartedly. No, it is an open-ended question. Um, and, uh, I think it's very, um, unfortunate that we don't read carefully, text to read that kind of nuance in Paul, especially of the number of times he backs off from a more dogmatic and dogmatic even is too strong a term, but a more confident, um, perspective on an issue and, uh, instead asks an open-ended question that's meant for you to wrestle with. Um, I think that those, those parts of Paul often are untaught or undertaught. And in this chapter, I want to do that justice. Um, so overall, um, to kind of sum up everything really quickly here, we've had chapters one through eight that have really explored how Paul sees the Jewish and the Gentile stories all arriving at the same place, which is they need Jesus. And thankfully Jesus came and for Paul, the calling of Abraham and the uh, way that Abraham was called is a unifying principle to both a Gentile and a Jewish story because Abraham believed in his call through faith and believed in a promise made to um, him through faith and Christians also believe in a promise made through faith. And so Abraham can unite both a Jew and a Gentile underneath them. If you want to go even further back for Paul, he also sees Adam as unifying both a Gentile and a Jew because Adam was this historic figure that caused all of sin and death to enter into the world, which is the exact mess that has gotten us all in the situation that we're in. And as a result, we need another second Adam figure to come along and fix this. How do we fix it? We get baptized into Christ Jesus's life. Um, we don't just cheat the system. We don't just uh, allow the system to um, uh, kind of work on us and then do whatever the heck we want to do. We actually have to live out the life of Jesus. Um, but this living out the life of Jesus is not that kind of living out like living out the life um, a Jew might live out according to the law, because all that does is end in death and suffering. Instead, it's living according to the Holy Spirit, who is put inside of us and gives us the way forward and out of the mess that we are in when it comes to sin, death, and the law. Um, that results in us then 
becoming at one point in time in the future co-heirs with Christ Jesus and being so united, both a Jew and a Gentile together, being so united both with one another and with Christ Jesus that we then become kings and queens over the entire world world, essentially, um, along with Christ Jesus. And that's where the story is headed. And Paul then, at the very end of Romans 8, uh, wraps it all up by saying that uh, all of those that are going to be co-heirs, they can look at their story from the very beginning to the very end and see that this was the God's plan all along, and that that plan um, started with the Israelite story of the Old Testament and has now worked its way all the way into the lives of both Israelites and um, Jews, or sorry, both Israelites and Gentiles. (laughs) Big question at the end of that. Well, I don't see that happening right now in our current culture and time, Paul. What's going on with the Jews? Why are they not... um, coming on board, especially if, you know, it says that Abraham was called and his descendants shouldn't, shouldn't they be called, right? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't his descendants also have that same call and be predestined to conform to God's image and then be glorified? Like, shouldn't all that be happening to anybody that's a descendant of Abraham? You know, like God even said, like, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the, like the sand on the seashore, right? You know, like what's going on here? Uh, that's where we pick up with Romans 9. And so hopefully that's a good um, explanation. Again, these are always long because they just take some time to really work through. But um, yeah, that is in a nutshell what we start out with in this chapter. And I hope that um, primes us very well for what's to come um, as we get into the chapter. So without further ado, let's go ahead and read the chapter. I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, 
I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Therefore, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall we, what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, and not only from Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. All right, so we begin this chapter with Paul uh, giving a very rare moment in this book, actually, of um, honesty and showing uh, the people that are listening to him that he probably um, understands that a lot of people um, would see him as uh, trying to shift the truth in this particular issue, um, probably um, for the reason that like, uh, he has been very antagonistic towards Jews for a lot of this book and has a bad history with Jews in many um, shapes or forms or fashions, causing them to want to murder him in several instances, um, inciting rebellions with them. And so there is a sense in which this opening here is almost a him going back on the defensive a little bit and saying, I speak the truth, right? I'm not lying. Like I'm, I'm not, um, I know it may appear this way, but I, I'm being completely truthful here. He goes so far as to say, I speak the truth in Christ, um, which is a very extreme way to say, look, I'm not lying. Um, my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Like he, he doesn't have any feeling from the Holy Spirit that he just really has a grudge against Jews or any of that nature. As a matter of fact, we're going to see that it's the complete opposite here later on in a second. Um, his point and his focus here is that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. 
And he knows this because of the Holy Spirit within him. He sees that um, his conscience and the Holy Spirit are both working in tandem. Um, This is a good point as far as... um, introspection goes there's one element of it in which your conscience is examining your inner life and seeing if there's any reason you might have many conflicts with this people group Um, and then the other half of it is the holy spirit also doing that inner work and trying to see if there's any inner reason why you might be having this conflict with um a people that uh have a different opinion than you do Um, this is actually a really good rule of thumb for just uh, analyzing conflicts in general is to let your conscience really mull over it and to let the Holy Spirit mull over it. And that's where he goes to in this um, beginning verse, at least. And for him, all he finds is anguish in his own heart for the people of Israel. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Jesus Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. That line has always astounded me. It's one of the most profound lines I think Paul has ever written is that he could say truthfully that he would rather not be in a relationship with Jesus Christ than uh, so that the people of God would uh, like so that Israel would come to faith. Um, That is a wow. That is, that is some love right there. (laughs) Um, That's something that like uh, I still think about sometimes I think about like, you know, if the choice were not having Jesus and all of the people of the universe, uh, like that didn't believe in Jesus suddenly believing in Jesus, like, would I take that option? Um, like, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself that question. Um, but it's worth pondering and it's worth, uh, meditating. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't, this is something that I really, I really still wonder about with Paul because, you know, for him to say that and wish that he were cursed and cut off from Christ, um, I don't know. Like, it, it feels like in churches and things like that growing up, like that is like the final thing, right? Like that is the end, um, and you just spend eternity cursed and cut off from Christ. And, uh, like I just, it's fascinating to me if that's what Paul was thinking when he wrote this line, like that is uh, a, like he's, he's saying he would rather be cursed for all eternity than, uh, and then, you know, the Jewish people be cursed for all eternity. Um, and I, 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 I think in some senses, I think in a real sense, this is him living out the life of Christ because like, I mean, honestly, that's kind of in a, in a smaller way. It's weird when we start talking about eternity because, um, you know, Jesus's death on the cross wasn't eternal, but it, in, in some sense it was. And that, that like, there's a whole, there's a whole like, um, systematic theological rabbit hole you could go down there about the eternality of the death of, of Christ's death on the cross. And, um, there's, there's a lot of papers that have been written on that subject and all of that, but like, I won't get into that really, but like there is an, there is a sense, I guess I would say that Jesus underwent all the human suffering and curse of, um, God even 
on the cross for all the rest of humanity to come to him. And I think Paul in a similar way is living out his master's life by saying something very similar here, saying that he would rather be cursed than, uh, so that all of his Jewish brethren could be saved. Um, and it's something that, um, is worth thinking about and thinking about your own choice if you were presented with that choice um, and really uh, praying to God about such a choice. Um, that, yeah, like I said, I haven't really fully worked through it myself, but I just want to give that question its breathing room, so to speak, and let you guys meditate on that at your own time. Um, it's an incredible thing that he says there. Um, so he says in verse 4, the people that he's talking about are the people of Israel, just to make it very clear. Um, theirs is the adoption to sonship. This is where I really think that we start to see the relationship between Romans 9 and Romans 8, because remember, um, uh, he talks about how we're adopted as sons in Romans 8, and now he's talking about the Jews and their adoption to sonship, right? So we know that Romans 8 then is uh, using a lot of Jewish language and categories for Christians like we've already set up. And this was actually a big source for why I came to the belief about Romans 8 that I have is actually Romans 9 and all of these uh, reusages of phrases like this. Theirs is the adoption to sons. Theirs is the divine glory that came up in Romans 8. Um, the covenants, the receiving of the law that came up in Romans 7, um, the temple worship and the promises, right? So you get a list of a lot of different things that are specifically for Jews. Their adoption to sonship, Israel is oftentimes called sons of God. Um, uh, their divine glory, that would be like their radiance um, shining on the hill of Mount Zion, right? Um, glory oftentimes can mean um, light emanating or shining. Um, the covenants, right? So all the covenants that God made with like David, with Abraham, um, all of the covenants were given to them. The receiving of the law on Mount Sinai, right, was given to them. And then even temple worship, like they were literally given a building that God said, this is where I am most located here. He's everywhere, but I'm most, most here. And uh, you can come as near to me as you possibly can get if you are in Jerusalem, right? Um, and that's a really, really powerful thing that the Jews were given is this access to God through the temple. And then, of course, all the promises made through all of the different prophets. Uh, and that's actually the thing that he's going to focus on is this last one, the promises, because the promises are the thing that he most sees as um, uh, relating to the Christian story and how all the promises made to the Jews are actually promises that a Gentile can pick up as well. And that's what he's going to focus on after this. Theirs is uh, theirs are the patriarchs, so they have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. So they also have the Messiah in their bloodline, right? Like Jesus is a Jew, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So, in a real sense, a Jew is king over all the world. Like you can say that, and that's something Paul believes wholeheartedly. A Jew is king over all the world now. In verse six. It is not as though God's word had failed. So he's assuming that because Israel isn't believing in Christianity, a lot of these 
questions are going to crop up of like, well, then I don't think the promises made by the prophets in the Old Testament really did come true then. Um, and since they didn't come true, and since Israel is not like king of the mountain, so to speak, over all of the different nations and is not that um, city on a hill that's shining out, since Israel as a nation is not that, um, that's a problem. And as a result, you're, what you're saying here, Paul, is that God's word failed. And he's saying, no, I'm not saying that. Uh, I'm not saying that God's word or his promises failed. Remember I said he was going to focus on the promises. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. So his first point here, not everyone that comes from the line of Israel is Israel. This is a blood-related um, point here. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. So Israel, in this case, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. That's um, It's kind of confusing, but in the Old Testament, <laughs> Jacob's name in the Old Testament was changed to Israel. And so uh, in the same way that Abraham was Abram was changed to Abraham, uh, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. And so here he's saying not anybody, not everyone who is a descendant of Jacob is actually Israel, right? Um, which is what the promise was all about was Israel. Nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children, right? So just because uh, someone was born from Abraham doesn't mean that they are Abraham's children. What does he mean by that? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be reckoned. Here's his first quote from the Old Testament. And this is a quote from uh, Genesis 21, verse 12. And the question here is that uh, Abraham really wants Ishmael to be his um, son and wants him to be the son in which all the promises that God made to him pass on through. And God's like, nope, it's going to be Isaac. Uh, Isaac is the one that it's going to go through. And Abraham uh, begs so much that eventually um, Ishmael is given a promise, but it's not the promise. But um, it takes Abraham actually like begging God to actually get Ishmael even something. Um, and so that's something from the very beginning of Abraham's story is something Paul's really honing in on. It's just because there was a child born to Abraham doesn't mean that that child is actually Abraham's promised child, right? There's only one promised child in the line of Abraham. And so it's not just by blood. You can't just have like five, 10 children and they all are considered um, children of the promise, right? Only one child was considered a child of the promise. That's how God set it up with Abraham, right? So that's his first point when he's talking about the Jewish people is we can't just lump all the Jewish people into this box called Israel's or, or God's elect. You can't just do that because if you do lump all of God's, all of the descendants, you're leaving out the fact that is Ishmael isn't um, elect at all. Um, he will go on later to say that um, the next uh uh, line in the chain is um, uh, Jacob and Esau, and Esau wasn't elect, and uh, yeah, well, we can just basically go down the chain and see that it's not just about um, being birthed from someone that's a Jew. There's an extra component to being a child of God or a son of God, right? So let's go further. Um, after quoting from that verse, he says in verse eight, in other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as 
Abraham's offspring. I think I've already kind of explained that, so we'll go uh, go ahead and move forward. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a, have a son. So he's relating why he's making a distinction between the child of promise and then just blood children here. Um, child of promise is the child that God came to Abraham and said, at 90 years old, you're going to have a son. Um, and Abraham didn't believe him. And so he went out and found a slave girl and uh, had sexual relations with her. And as a result, had Ishmael. And he thought, okay, that's going to make everything work now, right? Like I've, I've made everything work out according to God's plan because I've had a son. And he's the one that's supposed to fulfill all the promises that God said were going to happen. And he's going to be God's chosen one. Uh, God was like, nope. It's going to be through Sarah, actually, is your person. And that was the whole reason he went and got a slave girl was because Sarah was too old to have children. And yet God's saying, nope, you got to have faith in me. You can't just like cheat the system. That's a big theme with Paul. Um, you can't just try and make it work. Um, even I bet uh, he, he relates that even to the idea in Galatians of um, Hagar is Abraham uh, uh, living out the law and attempting to do things on his own strength and his own power. And then with Sarah, that is having faith in God that God will actually come and perform the mighty deeds of salvation, or in this case, give him the promise that he was told would happen, right? Um, And he actually relates the idea of Abraham's choice with Hagar was him living like a Jew following the law, and Abraham's choice to Sarah um, after that is him having faith in God and letting God do the work. Um, that's a big theme for Paul in a lot of his letters is that choice between Hagar and Sarah. So he brings that up here and says that Sarah is the one that's going to have the promised son. Even it's not about blood relations and it's not about you attempting to do your work on your own strength to get this promise enacted. The promise will come because you have faith in God. That's the big point. That's the thing you're hoping for is you're hoping you're putting your faith in God that the promise will come about. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. So then he moves on to another example here. Yet before the twins were born or had anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand. All right. So in this story, um, the next um, uh, two sons that are born are from Rebecca and Isaac, and they have twins. And so they're both born relatively around the same time. And God actually visits um, Rebecca before the children are born and tells Rebecca this line. Um, that the older is going to serve the younger. Um, and that line is something that uh, is pronounced before ev- either of them had ever done anything good or bad. And so um, Paul draws a second point. Not only is it not about blood, which he's already made the case, it's also not about whether or not one is good and one is bad. Um, as a matter of fact, um, what's interesting is that uh, Jacob is just as bad as Esau in the story of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is just as much of a horrible person as Esau, um, if even maybe a little worse because he cheats people his entire life. He ends up 
married to like two women and then sleeps with another two women. Like his story is the most fraught with like deception of any story in Genesis. His name literally means like a heel grabber or someone that's always grasping for the next like rank on the uh, line on the chain. Um, always like looking for the next opportunity to pull, pull the wool over someone's eyes basically. Um, so yeah, like he's not a good character and the whole point of this is not to say, well, he chose Jacob just because um, he wanted Jacob to go to heaven and he wanted Esau to go to hell. The point of this is to say that before they either had done anything good or bad, God decided to work through Jacob and not work through Esau. The second line he says is that Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. That's the first time um, something different than Genesis pops up here as a reference. This is actually from the book of Malachi. What's interesting here in the book of Malachi, and the reason this is brought up in um, Malachi, is that there's a tension going on between the descendants of Israel and the descendants of Esau in the book of Malachi. Um, The descendants of Esau become the nation of Edom. And Edom has a pretty rough history with Israel throughout their entirety as a kingdom and afterwards into exile. Um, By the time of the book of Malachi, um, they uh, have actually uh, encouraged Babylon to uh, treat them harshly. And uh, they have been kind of a thorn in the side of the returning exiles that are trying to rebuild the temple and try and settle in their home. They've not been uh, very um, good to them. And so God makes this promise to them that um, he is going to be with the people of Israel and take care of them. And Edom is going to not be something that they need to worry about. He's not with them. He actually um, strongly um, dislikes them in a huge way. Um, A lot of people have asked about this word um, hate here. Does hate have that kind of connotation of like the English word hate? And I don't think that uh, with the word study searches I have done, I don't think hate is actually the right word to use here. Um, I think it would be better um, translated to say, um, uh, one have I favored and one have I not favored. That would probably be a more accurate representation of this than using uh, hate or um, love. Um, that that there's, there's a connotation here of uh, this idea of um, one is just so hated that they're just going to end up in this like... Um, awful place. And then the other one is, um, uh, that they're loved and they're going to end up in this great place. And that's not really the connotation of these two words, even in the, um, researching them and seeing like what's going on with like their meaning. Um, a lot of what I'm seeing here, uh, even in like the Septuagint and stuff, um, the word here is actually agape used in the Septuagint. Um, so that's not, not that kind of love of like, um, uh, even like kind of like familial, but more unconditional love. It's that kind of love that, um, is generated regardless of how good, um, the people of Israel are. And what's funny about this line in the context of, um, Malachi is, um, Jacob getting loved at that point in time is not because Jacob deserves it. Like that whole book of Malachi is one big, um, defense from God against the people of Israel because Israel keeps accusing God of being a unfaithful God and God has to continually show up and say, no, you're actually the ones being unfaithful here and I'm 
following through with my side of the deal, but you guys aren't, and you, you are doing this and you're doing this, right? Um, so there's a huge, huge reason, even in like a easy word study that you could do to say that these words don't have the connotation of like one, I absolutely have just this vitriol anger and hatred towards them. One, I have this like, um, endearing and and like uh, they could never do anything wrong kind of quality to um no these are words that mean very different things the word loved here means unconditional covenantal kind of love i've committed to love this person um in almost like a marriage relationship of sorts kind of love um where um it's not even if they do something wrong, I'm still committed to the relationship with them. And then the hatred is not about vitriol hatred and this kind of like abrasive, angry vitriol that's going out. Um, it's just a strong aversion or um, distancing um, uh, and letting them do their own thing. Um, that's probably a far better translation of those two words is favor and not favor, I would say, than loved and hated. But again, that's just a flaw of the English language um, and that we use love in so many different ways and we use hate in so many different ways. Um, so it's not really a flaw of the translation, I would say, as much as it is a flaw just in our English language using those kinds of words. All that aside, his main point here is still that... Um, He's selecting people regardless of their moral uh, goodness, right? Um, and again, remember, this isn't, we, we've talked about this in Romans chapter 8. This isn't being selected to go to heaven or go to hell. This is being selected to be the children of a promise, um, the children that are going to bring about the Messiah and bring about the um, age that is to come um, where they are co-heirs with the Messiah. With, with the Messiah, right? That's that's what we're talking about here. That's a very big distinction to make in this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses. So here he assumes that there are going to be some Jews in particular that are going to have a problem with him even bringing up this story about Jacob and Esau because they are going to think about it from that moralistic following the law code perspective and so they're going to see that as um problematic for him just deciding who he's going to put his favor and rest on and who he's not going to put his favor and rest on and uh so he reminds him of a story in the book of exodus actually and quotes from that passage in exodus 33:19. and uh that passage is very loaded with um uh, context around it. And I would encourage you to go read Exodus 33 whenever you get a chance, because God says to Moses in that passage that he quotes, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But what, what that is quoted in and the context is right before God is about to wipe out Israel from the face of the earth um, and basically restart with all of the promises he made to Abraham, um, and he's going to restart all the promises with Moses. But Moses decides to intercede with him, intercede for Israel, and remind God, hey, you did make all these promises to them, and if you don't follow through with all these promises, then um, 
there's going to be other nations, other Gentile nations that are going to come up and say, well, you were a God that actually didn't follow through with what you promised you were going to do. Um, and so God relents and he says, yeah, you're right. Um, so I'm not going to go destroy them. And then what happens is this really interesting section after he intercedes in which God decides to show Moses himself in a more full way than really he's revealed himself to any other person before. Um, and that's the section that we get here in um, uh, chapter 33 of um, Exodus. In verse 12, he says, Moses said to the Lord, say, see, you say to me, bring up this people. Yeah, that's, that's all of his persuading. And the Lord said to Moses, the very thing you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy. So the context of that is Moses persuades God to uh, not destroy all the people. And then he asks a follow-up question. He says, I know you're good. I know you're an awesome God. And I want to see that. Like, I want to see, see that. Will you let me see that? And God says, yeah, I will. Um, and that's when he says this line, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So I, I want you to think about this. And God says to Moses, I have found favor with you, right? He had so much favor in Moses that he was about to start over with all of Abraham's promises with Moses and kill off everybody else, actually. And the whole reason for this line here is to communicate to anyone reading it that Israel was a hair's breadth of a way from being completely wiped off the map. And it was only because of God's mercy that they're even having this conversation with Paul right now, you know, about Christianity and everything going on. And that mercy was because of God having compassion on Moses, actually, and then therefore having compassion on the people of Israel through Moses, right? So it's the same story that we're dealing with now through Jesus um, is he's going to have mercy on whom he has mercy and he's going to have compassion on who's, who he has compassion. So what's this all calling up here? It's a very simple point to Paul. For Paul, God ultimately gets the final call and who he's going to decide to have mercy on, whether or not that's Israel, his very own chosen people, and whether or not that's not the case. That's his big point is if Israel um, messes up royally, like in the golden calf incident, God is fully capable of making a choice in that situation of they messed up royally. I'm going to wipe them from the face of the universe, right? Like he's fully able to make that choice. But that very same story has Moses then interceding for Israel and almost implicitly saying that God's probably not going to do that, even though he has the right to do that. And the reason he's probably not going to do that is because Moses interceded. So here's the, that's the context of that passage. 
that's the exact context that Paul is using this verse in here is God reserves the right to wipe people off the face of the earth if they don't follow through with their side of the bargain. He reserves that right and he will have compassion or mercy based off of his own decisions, right? But at the same time, there is an intercessor around like Moses that's there helping that decision come about, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about even further as we get down into this. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So his point here with the Jewish story in Exodus, it doesn't depend on whether or not uh, the Jews suddenly start doing good right after they messed up so royally with the golden calf. Like they would have gotten wiped out if it hadn't been for Moses. Um, And in this case, his focus here isn't even really bringing Moses to the front, but his attention is mainly focused on the fact that God just relented and had mercy because of Moses. Um, And so the whole point here is um, it wasn't human effort that brought that about. God just decided that the Israelites were going to get a free pass in that scenario. So what's the context? Are we just talking about before salvation? No, we're talking about the people of Israel in a situation in which they're promised by God to be the light that's shining on a hill and yet they are failing at that. And so what is God going to do with a people that are his people that are failing at it? He has the right in that case either to be merciful to them or not be merciful to them. That is the context of what he's saying here. Um, So three things he's brought up so far. One, Israel, uh, not about blood, not about blood relations, because we've had some children that are Ishmael and some children that are uh, uh, Isaac. Two, not about whether or not they do good or whether they do bad, um, because God has chosen some pretty crappy people <laughs> in the line of Israel. Three, it's also not about um, them earning any kind of mercy or grace from God once they have done bad. Um it's all up to God's deciding of how he's going to handle a people group that decide to go astray when they are his chosen people. Okay. Those are the three things that are being communicated so far for the scriptures say to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So now he uses another example from Exodus of Pharaoh. And he says, Pharaoh is a great example of a people of what it looks like for someone to be doing the things that God wants that person to be doing, even though they are disobeying God. Um, Pharaoh actually becomes a good instrument for God for how things are going to pan out for other people because of his hardness of heart. So this is a a new twist in the story. Not only can God decide whether or not to have mercy on the people of Israel for getting into the place where they're rejecting Christ um, or not, uh, he can also decide to use their rejection of Christ as a tool to bring more Gentiles into the fold, which is what he's going to get to in a second. Um, That is awesome 
from a Gentile's perspective, not fun from a Jewish perspective, but that's how Paul sees it, right? Is he sees the fact that God could very likely use the failing of the Jews to believe in Jesus as the bringing about of more Gentiles to the faith, which is a good thing. Um, not good for Jews, but good for Gentiles. And that is something he'll talk about in the chapters after this chapter. And that's why it's really important to read Romans 9 through 11 in kind of an entirety instead of just focusing on nine. When you read all three chapters together, you see where that argument is going and you can see for sure how all of that's getting played out. Okay. So he uses Pharaoh as an example of how it's possible that this current rejection that the Jews are going through is just them living the story of Pharaoh right now. Um, therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So he restates that whole line again, showing that Pharaoh could be used as a hardening right now because uh, it says in the Exodus story that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But remember in the Exodus story, it takes through five times of Pharaoh hardening his own heart before uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So you have five times that Pharaoh himself refuses God before God then comes in and starts to harden Pharaoh's heart. So there's this um, incremental um, choosing that the more and more you choose away from God, the more and more you reject Jesus as a Jew, the more and more God is going to start using that rejection for his own purposes. And fine, if you are starting to store up wrath because you keep rejecting my son, um, fine, I'll use you in a different way than what I want you want to use you for, which is the promise, right? Um, instead, he's going to use you um, as an object of his wrath to show to the people that do believe in Jesus what's going to happen. And that's what he's going to get to at the bottom here. What if, oh, well, before he gets there, he says um, in verse uh, 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? So he assumes, knowing that he's bringing this up, he assumes that a Jew is going to be like, well, if that's the case, then why would it seems unjust that God would blame me, a Jew, um, for any sin if he's using the fact that I'm rejecting Jesus for his own advantage, right? Um, it seems unjust that God could do that. And his point to that is, uh, who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Like, you have decided to reject his son. You know, you've made that call. That's been your decision. You've decided to reject his son. And so you're just in a place now where you have a lack of faith and you're just trying to earn your way to salvation, essentially. Um, earn it through your own understanding of the law instead of having faith. You're making the choice of uh, Hagar instead of the choice of Sarah. And because you've decided to do that, God can use you how he wants to use you. <laughs> um, he can decide whether or not you're going to be a Pharaoh to him or not. You know, um, you have, uh, uh, this is language that I think is really helpful is that choice earlier on in this book, Paul saw as becoming a slave to what? A slave to sin and the law, right? So if you're a slave already, Paul can uh, Paul sees God deciding that a slave should start working over here instead of here 
as something within God's prerogative. He can decide where a slave goes to work. You know, you're already giving up freedom, so you might as well be useful to God in a different way, right? And so that's what Paul sees anybody that makes that choice as doing is uh, anyone of that, that character that has made that call is free game for God to use how he sees fit. And honestly, even Christians, God uses how he sees fit, but in a very different way. Um, He works with Christians in a way that's very much conversational, covenantal, right? He's constantly um, hoping that they rely on him and trust in him and have faith in him, and he asks for them to do things, whereas for a non-Christian, uh, for a Jew that's rejecting Jesus, he's just he doesn't give them that choice anymore. He just starts to like put them places and have things work out the way. Um, it's a very true thing to say that the uh, more you believe in Jesus, the more free will you have. And the less you believe in Jesus, the less free will you have. And that's something I wish a lot of Calvinists would see as something that Paul believes, um, is that there is a freedom in Christ and there is a slavery being away from Christ. Maybe that helps with some of what he's getting at here. Um, so speaking of that, he then says, shall what is formed say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for special purposes and some for common use idea being ultimately God has the final say so on what he gets to do with the, the, pot with the the clay that he's currently working with. And I think a lot of people miss the idea that like when you shape a jar of pottery, um, you're constantly having to put your hands on the clay. Like you're constantly having to guide it and control it throughout the entirety of its process. But at some point you've got to let go. You've got to let go and see if it's going to hold its shape or see if it's just going to go back to its um, original form, which was just a lump of clay. And the idea here is that after that point, when you let go and you see if your work at the potter's um, place has worked out or not, at that point then um, is when you make the decision, what is this going to be? Is this going to be a really fine piece of pottery or is this just going to be something that uh, is – going to be for common use you know uh you can completely if you see it's bad and you want to make it a uh good jar again what you have to do is you have to completely crumple it all up and destroy it basically and start over right which is exactly what would have happened with um the golden calf incident is he would have crumpled up all of israel and started over with moses right Or um, you can say, well, this is what I'm working with right here, and this is what you're going to be, and that's just how it's going to be, you know? Um, Those are your two choices there, Um, and God reserves the right to decide which of those two choices he's going to make, whether or not he's going to decide to crumple you up and try and remake you anew, or whether or not he's just going to deal with what you are, you know? Um, And as a non-believer... That's his prerogative is he can decide what that is. Um, and he can decide even up to 
like how much glory those people are going to show, right? How much glory they are going to be in the kingdom. If they're already, and this is, this is a really big point is think about David here. David is heralded as a man after God's own heart and all of that. But he's also like a pretty bad guy. Like he's someone that does not do a lot of good things, especially at the, like right at the very half line mark of like um, the book of second Samuel, everything just goes horribly wrong with David. And, you know, by the end of the book, he's in bed with this young teenager. That's like a virgin um, and can't even like run a kingdom without coops happening and his son trying to take the throne and like um he even gives solomon a hit list on his deathbed like you know like there's horrible things that david did at the very end of his reign and uh yet god loved him and decided to work with him and i'm not saying david was an unbeliever or anything like that but i'm just saying that god had every right to crumple him up and throw him away you know, um, for all of the things he did with Bathsheba, for all of the things that like he did after that. Right. But he didn't. He decided to use him for his glory and become a good vessel that serves as a representation of someone that loved God. And a lot of the Psalms show that David was aware of that, actually, and was very penitent towards God and humble to God because he was aware of that. Right. He's aware that even though uh he kind of was in a category in which God should crumple him up and destroy him. God chose of his own freedom and mercy to make him a vessel vessel um, for his own purposes. Right. And not just for common use, not just a vessel stored up where you're just someone that just walks around drunk all the time. And you're really just waiting for death where you then get the wrath of God. Right. Um, Instead, God chose to still use him in that life that he had for good things. And the Psalms are a great example of that. Right. That's a great example of what I'm talking about here and what I think Paul is getting at with Israel in particular. Um, this idea is that like ultimately like God gets the final call what to do with you when you screw up so royally that like uh, it's kind of a question mark of what's going on here, you know? Um, and that, that to me, um, I do think that there's a component in which your relationship with God up to that part plays a a strong role. Um, David's relationship with God up to the point where things started going royally wrong um, was really good. And so I think part of that factors into it. Um, but he's not earning God's mercy. It's not an earning thing. It's really just up to God deciding in that moment whether or not he's going to crumple you up as a potter and start over or whether or not he's going to um keep you around just for kind of common use, right? Um, that is, that's kind of what's going on here. Then in verse 22, he says, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience, the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. Everybody talks about this verse as if this is, um, God predestining people to go to hell. That's not what this is saying. It's a what if, first of all, that's what we talked about in the intro to this. And the what if is what if he chose to show, although, and, and, the, and the, the section that uh, most people um, 
miss over is that the section of choosing to show his wrath and make his power known is an although phrase. So that's not even the what if. The what if is um, what if he decides to bear with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, right? That's the what if. Um, Paul takes it as a given that there are people that he's going to show his wrath and make his power known to, you know, like there are going to be people that are going to get what's coming to them. He takes that as a given. And that's something that we all should tremble in our seats about um, and all think about. But his point and the what if here is what if God actually decides to have a lot of patience with those very people? What if he bears them with great patience? Um, And then he says, what if the reason for him having a lot of patience with people like that is because he wants to make the riches of his glory known to the people that are going to receive his mercy? Meaning, in other words, there are some people that commit the same problems and sins. There are going to be some people like David. And then there are going to be some people like Esau, you know, or um, uh, honestly, a good example of this would be um, Saul, actually. Actually, Saul and David is a great example of this. Um, In many ways, the book of Samuel understands that there was no difference between Saul and David. Um, And you can see this even in the literary structure of the book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, the first 15 chapters basically of the book of Samuel uh, from when Saul starts on the on the page are all glowing of Saul and Saul's a great person and everything's going great and God favors Saul and everything's going according to plan and then at the midway part Saul starts disobeying disobeying some of God's God's orders and instructions and then all of a sudden we just get story after story of Saul being a horrible person and it all just ends and it's a very I guess I'll just say it's a very abrupt shift from Saul is good to now Saul is bad. It's the same story with David up until Bathsheba. David can't do a single thing wrong. And then the rest of the book of Samuel is just everything he does wrong Um, or something that happens as a result of him doing uh, things wrong. And so we know that the book of first Samuel and second Samuel, we know that that is aware of the fact that these two Kings really were no different than one another. But at the end of the day, God had favor on David and did not have favor on Saul. So what's going on here? Like what, what, what is that? Why, you know? And for Paul, Paul sees all of the patience that God had for, for Saul during that, all of the times that God relented and did not just wipe Saul off the map immediately as evidence two people like David who then find themselves in the very same situation and realize that God is being merciful to them. So think about that for a second. The people that God has a lot of patience with that don't believe in him at all are evidence to the people that do believe in God, or at least are attempting to believe in God. um, That God has mercy and that God has mercy not just on what me, but also has patience um, with people that don't believe. So Saul is just as much evidence of God's mercy as Jesus is. That's really what he's getting at here. And 
what you get to see here is that that's how Paul sees the people of the Jews right now. He sees the people of the Jews in the situation that they don't believe in Christ. So God's got to have patience with them. And he doesn't have to have patience with them. He's choosing to have patience with them. And remember, this is a what if for Paul. We, he, he's very much, and I talked about this at the beginning, this is very much just, I want you to think about this, right? And his thought here is, what if the reason there hasn't been any kind of like huge destruction of a whole Jewish people for killing the Messiah, for not believing in him now, for trying to kill me as many times as possible. What if the reason God's had so much patience with them is because he's trying to show you people in Rome that believe in Jesus, um, that, uh, God is a merciful God, that he's a God that has patience, right? That is a, that's a powerful what if. And I think that's something that, um, we miss with our more kind of theological readings of this passage. So then after he says that he does clarify these people, if they don't believe are prepared for destruction, you know, they're, they're people that are like, you know, uh, basically going down the wrong storyline and, they are Saul's, you know, there's no, there's no way to like sugarcoat that they are Saul's and because they don't have faith, they are being prepared for destruction, even as we speak, you know? Um, and he does make that very known is like, if they keep going down this path, like, you know, there's nothing for it. There will come a moment where God just lets them go into their destruction what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Yep. Even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So the objects um, of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory. So remember, this is all going back to this idea of um, we are prepared in advance for glory. That's something that we talked about last week is that it was set up from the very beginning that, um, the Jews thought it would be them that would be the people that would be co-heirs with God. Now it's all Jews and Gentiles that believe in Jesus are co-heirs with Christ, actually, who is God. And all of that's prepared in advance, right? Even us whom he called, and not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So he makes it very clear there, not just Jews, but also Gentiles now, right? Just to kind of really like let that point sink in um, super hard. Um, and the point there is, yeah, like the, the whole story now is involving both a Jew and a Gentile in this story that used to be something that Jews thought was only about blood, only about um following strict regulations and Paul's point is like you can look back at the Old Testament story and see that there are moments in time where the entire people of Israel could have been wiped off the face of the earth and it wasn't until God in his mercy just decided to continue to work with them instead of starting over with Moses um, that things worked out so like you know you've got to really think about like what that might mean if you decide to reject God again. And in, in a way, Paul sees um, the people of Israel rejecting Jesus as them recommitting the sin 
of the golden calf. That's how he sees it. That's how he's laid this whole thing out. And so what's God got to do? You know, like ultimately he sees that they're being prepared for destruction. You know, um, God's setting out to prepare them for destruction. Um, and the people that believe in God, God foreknew. Um, he chose them. He called them. Uh, like those people can have Jews within them, but they are completely divorced and separate from the blood Abraham children. And a lot of those blood Abraham children are going to be Ishmael's, not Isaac's. So that's that's what he's getting at here. And then he quotes a huge list of different Old Testament passages to really kind of back up everything he just laid out there as just like, here, here's, here's what's going on. And he starts with Hosea. Um, in Hosea, this is uh, in verse and chapter, one second here. I actually didn't have this one pulled up. Hosea 2.23, and I will go ahead and read a little bit of this just so we can kind of get the context because, you know, I like to do this. Um, so it says, it starts off, um, and in that day, I will answer, declares the Lord, and I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. So um, that's really interesting because um, the context of that is that uh, uh Hosea is actually tasked with um, naming uh, a few of his sons like really weird names like No Mercy and Not My People. Um, and so uh, it's the son of Hosea. And the way he gets the son is through a wife that's unfaithful to him. And so he has um, a son basically that he says, Not my son, not my people, um, no mercy um, from an unfaithful wife. And this whole section here is showing that uh, God sees himself as Hosea in the story and sees the wife as Israel and their resulting union together is children that are not his, right? Um, But there's going to come a day when actually all of this is going to be reversed and all of the horrible problems that Israel has had in relationship with God are going to be fixed. And that is going to result in God then saying to that son of his that came from an unfaithful relationship with Israel, um, you are my son, you are my people, right? And that's what we have here. Um, And why do you think he's bringing this up? Is because, well, Israel's still being an unfaithful harlot right now. Um, And it's the son of that union, Christianity, basically, and anybody that believes in Christianity, that is the like thing that works, right? Like that's the, that's the, um, that's the thing that he's redeeming here. And that's the thing that he's saying, you now are my people. But Paul's also kind of using it in a dual way because the Gentiles were not God's people and now they are God's people. You see kind of the dual way that he's using that there. Then he pulls from another passage, and 
In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. This is also in Hosea. This is chapter 1, verses, verse 10. And in this area here, um, uh, the idea is pretty much the same. Um, I'll read a few of these verses here. Um, starting in verse 8, uh, and when she, that's the unfaithful wife of Hosea, had weaned no mercy, that's the son, um, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Right? Verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So this this is a really important verse because it says the number of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. That's actually something he said to Abraham. That's a promise he made to Abraham. So it's almost as if God, after just making that proclamation of they're not my people, right? He then remembers, oh, but I made that promise that said that they would be as numerous as the sand on the sea. And so what does he jump into in the very next line? And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. So he's saying that in that place where he said, you are not my people, they will now become my people. And Paul is using that once again to bring home that very same point of God didn't just stop once they were unfaithful. He kept working and he kept being merciful and he kept finding new ways to use even their unfaithfulness for his purposes. But the really important thing to remember here is that God's mercy here was completely up to him. It wasn't something that he had to do because at that point, Israel had failed and broken their covenant with him. And at that point, he can decide how to best handle the situation. And it's in his prerogative to decide whether or not he's just going to smash Israel all to pieces or he's going to reshape them into something um, better and revitalize them in a new way, which is what we kind of see through these prophets, um, is that they see Israel in some way, shape, or form, at least with Hosea, and then we'll talk about Isaiah as well, how um, Hosea at the end really sees the whole situation as Israel's failing, and yet God has decided to have mercy on them um, despite their um uh, unfaithfulness. And yet that um, mercy um, is coming about, Paul sees, in a way that is very different than what Jews expected. Um, and so his point here is that the Jews shouldn't be angry at this because um, they should be glad that they're getting any mercy in the first place. Um, and just because it involves a person named Jesus uh, doesn't mean uh, that that is antithetical to all of their expectations and hopes and promises. As a matter of fact, Jesus is um, amazing um, to Paul and is the answer to all of their problems. And that's why he brings all this up in Hosea. He then turns to Isaiah in verse 27. And in Isaiah, he focuses again on um, a passage that links that thought of the Israelites being numerous as the sand of the sea. Um, remember, that was a promise made to Abraham. And so that's something that the Jew would bring up and be like, well, I thought like 
we're going to be as numerous as all um, the stars in the sky. That's the promise God made. How can you be saying now that like um, only a few Jews are going to be coming to the faith um, and uh, it's predominantly a Gentile religion now? What's going on here? What's, you know, that seems to be going against um, the prophecy. And so what um, uh, Paul reminds them of in the Isaiah passage, this Isaiah passage is pulled from Isaiah chapter um, 10, verses 22 and 23. Um, In this passage, um, uh, he reminds them that um, Isaiah kind of adapted that prophecy um, that Abraham had. Um, In that passage, he talks about how Israel had gone so far astray that now, as much as they are a numerous nation with um, uncountable people, like the sand on on a seashore, um, now uh, God is promising that they're going to go into exile and only a remnant of them will return. And that's what he says in this line. Though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. And uh, this is something that uh, we I could spend a whole uh, podcast just talking about the remnant in the Old Testament and how the remnant works. But the short, like really quick summary of it is just that um, God's promises to the people of Israel throughout the entirety of the Old Testament slowly and slowly get funneled down into just one small segment of people that are actually faithful to God throughout this entire process. And that is the people that God has mercy on. Um, and the people um, larger than that um, are the ones that go into exile and never return. Um, the whole book of Ezra and Nehemiah is kind of uh, structured in a way to say that all of the people that come back to rebuild the temple are that remnant. And so the idea is in in the Jews' current time, uh, in the first century at least, um, they would have assumed that all of their people are that remnant. They're, they're the surviving Jews from um, the whole Maccabean um, situation and um, the, that for a, a huge part of um, their culture, they would have assumed that, um, yeah, uh, at if they live in Jerusalem, they are part of that remnant. Um, Pharisees would have assumed that they are the remnant because they are following the Torah as closely as possible. Um, and so everybody's kind of claiming to be this remnant. And Paul um, comes on with a new claim, which is that that remnant is um, Christianity um, and that um any Israelites that are within Christianity are part of that remnant. Um, And that to him is the important thing. Um, He then uh, says this, basically the same thing in verse uh, 29 with a different passage from Isaiah. Um, This passage says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Demorah. So so this is a passage from chapter one of Isaiah. And in this chapter, he reminds them that um, uh, there's a verse that talks about how wrathful God was with Israel, and he reminds them that uh, if God hadn't have left them some small remnant, they really would have been wiped out, and um, that should remind them that God is still being faithful to them, is that he's still choosing to have mercy with them, even though he doesn't have to, and um, it's totally within his prerogative to wipe them all out. He's still leaving behind a remnant, and they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah had God just decided to wipe them all out. So that's a really important point to Paul because it's like God is still having mercy on Jews. Um, He had mercy on the Jews in the um, Old Testament, and Paul still sees um, the the small remnant of Jews that are becoming Christians as um, 
mercy that God is having for Jews, one, killing. And I should make it very clear, the Jews did not kill Jesus. I said that earlier in this episode, and uh, that is not, uh, that's not historically accurate. It was the Romans that killed uh, Jesus. Um, but the Jews played a huge part in that, and because they played a huge part in it, um, John makes a case for um, uh, Christ's blood being on the Jewish people's um, heads. Um, He actually has the Jewish people say, let his blood be on our own heads. And so while it's true that the Israelites did not kill Jesus, um, they share part of that blood guilt. Um, And that's something that I think Paul um, recognizes. Um, He sees it in his own life as he was killing Christians. Um, That's part of um, uh, his conversion as Jesus actually says to him, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my church or my um, uh, bride or um, my people? He says, why are you persecuting me? Um, and so there's, a, in a huge way, um, this kind of uh, close relationship between the Christians of the first century and Jesus and how Paul sees um, uh the Jews uh, treating Christians in general, and uh, for him at least, uh, there is a little bit of culpability there, I guess I would say. Um, But yeah, it's really important to get that correct because um, that can lead to a little bit of anti-Semitism sometimes, uh, and that's not what we want to try and do. Um, But at the same time, there is a thread throughout the entirety of the New Testament um, that really uh, seems to, in some way, shape, or form, um, hold the Jews for um, some sense of guilt for um, what happened to Jesus. Um, As a result of that, um, he then um, works in kind of an explanation at the very end of this passage. He says, what then shall we say, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it? Pretty obvious, right? Um, The Gentiles weren't trying to be faithful to God, and yet they've obtained it because they've started to believe in Jesus. Um, a, a righteousness that is by faith, but the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. So he's saying Israel for their entire history was trying to be righteous and trying to fulfill the covenant that was given to them on Mount Sinai, right? Um, why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. And this really important point for Paul is they're attempting to um, uh, basically uh, follow Torah as closely as possible. And uh, their hope is to get to be that covenant people um, so that God will then send the Messiah and uh, level everyone else because they've finally been able to achieve um, that Torah um, righteousness, and uh, which we just say is a right relationship with God. And uh, Paul is very much um, of the belief that um, that's not going to end well. Um, that's not ended well in the history of the Old Testament for them, and it's not going to end well now, um, which is why he uh, oftentimes uh this is probably the number one thing he has against Judaism is that they should know better because their Old Testament seems to indicate that they um, can't follow Torah um, and that they can't uh, be able to do it um, in the way that God wants them to do it. Um, not to say that uh, following Torah is impossible. Um, Jesus does it. 
Um, and uh, through Jesus doing it, um, uh, he institutes and fulfills that law. Um, and so there is a huge sense in Paul of um, all of the law being a guardian of sorts until Jesus comes and fulfills it. And after it is fulfilled, um, Jesus's um, institution of uh the law is uh, through the Sermon on the Mountain. He doesn't get rid of it. He just uh, actually, in many cases, makes it more severe and makes it more about the heart, which is what the law was all about in the first place. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, um, strength, right? And so all of this for Paul is um, that the Gentiles have just started to trust in God. They have decided to trust in God that he will give them the power to live out the Sermon on the Mount. And the Jews, on the other hand, uh, are uh, unfortunately um, attempting to do it through their own um, understanding of law instead of trusting in God. And as a result of that and having faith in God, I'm using trust here when I should use the word faith, but um, trust is an easier word I've found in the English language to kind of describe faith. Um, And as a result of that, uh, the Jews, he sees, are um, stumbling as a result of that. And uh, what he says here is, um, they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's also from Isaiah. Um, And it's really interesting in Isaiah, that one, um, uh, he talks about how... uh, he sets up a stone um, in verse in chapter twenty eight, verse sixteen. Um, uh, I'll actually kind of read the context of that because it's really interesting. Uh, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Um, so he, he links that idea of... Um, they're being awful, and so he's going to lay a stone that's going to be a precious stone that whoever believes in it um, uh, will be saved, basically. But notice that it's a covenant that the Israelites are in, a covenant of death that's causing them to be um, uh, unaware of the stone that he's laying in Zion. And his point here um, with all of this is that that, in a huge sense, is the faith in Christ. Um, the faith in Christ is that stone. Jesus actually calls himself that cornerstone um, that the builders, uh, that's going to crush the builders that um, set it up, essentially. Um, and it's really important point um, that, like, for the Jews, uh, Jesus has become that stumbling block. Um, he also calls from uh, verse uh, chapter 8, and uh, this is in uh, verse 14. I'll read that as well. Um, in verse 14, um, he talks about how 
Um, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. There's some interesting things about the Trinity there because God in this Isaiah passage is the stone. Um, and so uh, the idea here is that like, um, God has become a stumbling block to Jews specifically, to the house of Israel, um, because of their whole history and because of how they've never been able to understand um, how to get out of the covenant that they were in with Mount Sinai and that the covenant itself um, is accusing them. Um, And as um, uh, basically what they've done is... uh, assumed that Moses is their savior in a sense when uh, uh, it is actually an intermediary figure named Jesus that needs to be their savior. And that's where he ends this first chapter, chapter nine, um, is really in this place of just really talking about the fact that for him, it's not about um, the fact that God's promises failed in the Old Testament. Um, He that's why he brings up all these Old Testament passages in this chapter is to show there was a lot of prophecies after those initial prophecies that showed that um, Israel doesn't necessarily have a good shot at it um, because of all of their unfaithfulness in the Old Testament. And he reminds people that um, accuse him of saying that uh, you're not really reading your Old Testament correctly, that there's a huge strand throughout the entirety of the Old Testament that comes after Abraham in which it starts to show that the promises made to Abraham um, uh, are having to be adapted because the people of Israel have never been faithful to God and never been following the covenant that God made. And it's a really important point is all of those promises that God made to Israel are conditional on them following the law. Um, and uh, Paul's big point is they never were able to follow the law. So how could they, um, and this isn't just Paul's point, this is all the prophetic books too, Hosea and Isaiah and all them, they never were able to follow it. And so how could all of these promises get um, uh, satisfied if Israel is still being awful. Um, It's really up to God's decision now whether or not he's going to have mercy or not have mercy. Um, And we see through this new way of doing things through Jesus, um, he is still having mercy, but it's in a very specific way. And it's up to a Jew to figure out, um, are they going to believe in that or are they going to still trust the old system that's been put in place in throughout the entirety of their life. Um, that's really the main main ending of Romans 9, and that's what he's bringing forward, is he's making the argument really clearly that, um, well, maybe not really clearly, since uh, this has notoriously been a chapter that many people have debated, um, but he's making the argument here that, like, ultimately, um, God electing Jews for a specific purpose um, and then them failing to live out that purpose means that they're free game. He can decide what he wants to do with them. Um, and if he decides to choose Gentiles now to bring about that purpose, that's within his prerogative. Um, and uh, Paul sees that as um, 
completely within his prerogative because Israel failed, not just because God's choosing all day long, but because Israel failed um, in their abilities to live out the law. Um, And he sets up this idea of, um, uh, you know, for him, um, God chose Israel not because they were a good people, um, not because they did good or because they did uh, wrong. He chose them because he wanted to see if they would work through him. Um, there are multiple passages in the Old Testament that say um, that he chose Israel not because they were a good people. Um, and he chose them just because he chose them. And the idea is um, now that they have failed, he can do that again. He can choose Gentiles just because he's decided to choose Gentiles. Um, and that's the important point of all of this, um, is that uh, for a Jew, they can't just, uh, if they were to go back and try and make all these accusations of Paul changing things, Paul's response to that is, well, I actually think the prophets of the Old Testament were changing things way before I was, and I'm just reading the prophets really carefully. Um, that I think is what's going on in a nutshell. Um, and it's, that's also why reading Romans nine, um, you really won't understand it unless you do that deep dive into all of these old Testament passages, which is why this episode took so long. Um, but again, uh, I think, uh, walking through this, seeing all those old Testament connections, I think that can really shed some light on everything going on. All right, this episode has, has been super long. I knew it would be, um, but, uh, we've gotten through it, um, Congratulations, you've made it through the most controversial chapter of the book of Romans. Um, And I hope I did a good job of this. I hope that um, this was at least, even if you disagree with me on some of these interpretations, which undoubtedly, probably, um, there will be some of you listening that will. That's totally fine. This is meant to be a starting point. Um, The main thing I want you to take away from this chapter is all the Old Testament connections. Um, That's the main thing I want you to think about and to meditate on and to see if what I'm saying holds true, at least with that aspect of it, um, and really think about those Old Testament connections. Um, and uh, if if you do that um, and come to a different persuasion about it, um, I'm totally on board with that. But I, I, I've found, um, at least with the more Calvinist-leaning perspective, that they leave out a lot of these Old Testament connections. Um, and that has been one of the biggest reasons, I guess I would say, for not seeing this reading as more of a Calvinistic reading. Um, I mean, there's other, other reasons, of course, but I would say that's the that has always been the one that stuck out to me, as I very rarely hear when a Calvinist teaches through Romans 9, kind of going through all of these Old Testament connections and really mapping out Paul's brain, I guess I would say, into why he brings up each one of these in the way he does and what's his flow of thought, so to speak. Um, it mainly feels more segmented and segregated, I guess I would say, um, and less like uh, someone that's really read their Bible a lot and has been thinking about it. Again, um, I'm not saying that there aren't people that have done that well that are in the Calvinist persuasion, um, and if you're a Calvinist doing this, I really encourage you to um, uh, maybe make that part of your persuasion, um, because that will make your uh, belief Um, way more, or your argument, I guess I would say, way more stronger, um, especially to me, um, if you can really connect all of those Old Testament passages that Paul brings up in a really convincing way. I think that that's, I think that that's at the heart of Romans 9 is all of these Old Testament passages. Because again, we go back to what I said at the very beginning of this, 
Whenever we come to a very hard-to-understand passage of Scripture, the number one question I think you should ask is, um, why is this here? Like, what is Paul intending to communicate here? Um, what is what what is the context of Romans 8 and Romans 10 um, and Romans 11? What are all of those trying to communicate? And let's try and see um, if we can understand this harder passage Um really through the context of the chapters around it and understanding what's going on um, with the surrounding argument. And I think um, you'll see, at least with this reading, um, that Romans 10 and 11, as we get through them, um, are going to make a lot more sense, too, um, from this kind of reading. So um, we have a lot to lock to, uh, sorry, we have a lot to look forward to with this, but um, I'm going to sign off for now because I've been talking for far too long, and uh, I will see you guys in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening to this and supporting this. Um, feel free to like this uh, podcast if you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, um, uh, and uh, shoot me an email at arcmaster7 at gmail.com if you would like to talk about it. All right. Thank you guys so much, and have a good day. Bye. Thank you.